with a heart that's, how can we live in the age of self with a heart that's bound to the people of God in a community? How can we live in an I culture with a we mentality? We'll be in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. And uh, as we've worked our way through Hebrews, the central theme that hopefully you know by now, but I'm going to keep repeating it until about mid-May when we finish, um, is Jesus is better. Jesus is the better everything. He's better than what you've left behind. He's better than what you can lose. He's better than what you could gain in the world. He is better. He is better. He is better. And if that's true, it's utter insanity to turn away and go back. It's utter insanity. And so press on towards maturity. And and as we've uh, rounded this out, chapter 10 introduced us to this idea that there is great reward in holding to the confidence we have in Jesus Christ. Confidence being our saving faith. And so holding fast to the gospel that saved us, there's this great reward. And at the end of it, there are these wonderful promises. And so that's how chapter 10 ends. But then what does he say? What do you need now to get from where you are to the promises and their complete and total fulfillment at the end? You need endurance, right? Life has hard stuff in it. Life has heartbreaking stuff in it and disappointing stuff in it and lots of our own failure mixed into it. And so how do I get from here to there? Endure. Chapter 11, here's a lot of people who endured. So you have some good examples. And then chapter 12, it's our turn. Run your race with endurance, Run the race that God set before you, not the one that set before your neighbor and not the one that set for the person across the uh, auditorium from you. Run the race God gave you with endurance. And so uh, as we get through chapter 12, he goes through these, uh, up till now, there's these three components working together. And so in the first part of chapter 12, you have a personal responsibility by the grace of God, with the Spirit of God indwelling, you have a personal responsibility to run with endurance. Right? There's all kinds of good stuff that accumulates in our life, and the more it accumulates, the less room there is for God, and there's less room there is for running after God. And so lay aside these good things that have just accumulated in your life, but weigh down your life. And then sin will always, always restrict your running after God. And so lay aside sin, lay aside weights, But then positively, what is my personal commitment that makes all that possible? Looking to Jesus. And so fixing my eyes on Jesus means I turn away from all of the distractions of my life, all the things that I pay attention to in my life, and I fix my gaze on Jesus Christ. I'm focused in attention, and I'm focused in the sight of my heart. We have a personal commitment that's required to run with endurance. There also needs to be an understanding of our identity before God and the purposes of God in our hardship if we're going to continue. So God has a part. And in the, what we saw a couple of weeks ago, uh, before Easter time, we saw that God is purposeful in the middle of our trials. And the trials that we have, the hardships that we have, even the opposition that we have, they tempt us to think God has left or God has abandoned us or God doesn't love us anymore. And the text said the exact opposite. The repeated word of the section right before what we're in today was son, 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 son. And so God has a fatherly disposition to you where he is your father and you are his child in a way that is unbreakable. And that means that the love that God has for you is secure and immense. And so as a child of God, you are loved by God. That is the framing identity for you to face the hard stuff of your life with. And then the last part of that, that section, before we get into this one, that, that bleeds into this one is this. God is purposeful in your trials. He doesn't waste pain. He's forming something in you that is better than what you would have if your life remained comfortable and according to the storyline that you would write. See, when, when a father trains us for, uh, through discipline, holiness is worked out in our life, meaning we are more and more and more like Jesus Christ. When, when the father works through the hard stuff of our life, righteousness and peace are the harvest of our life. And since blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, then he is giving us the greatest desire of our soul, 
righteousness as the byproduct or, or the purpose of trials. And so God's doing something in us that's better than what would happen in our lives if everything were the way we wanted it. And so you have a commitment to make. God's up to something in your trials so you can endure. And then today, a third piece of this. You cannot run the race of the Christian life alone. Now, I know that everything around you says you can. You can define yourself. You are autonomous. It is all about you. You can, uh, you can define your own worship. You can pick your own flavor of church, Bible preacher, commentary, study, whatever. It's about you. And if you live your life about you, you will be desperately disappointed and things will go desperately wrong. But if you live your life about him, and if you live your life about others, then you'll have a whole different perspective on it. And so today, community's role in helping us endure. Community's role in helping us to grow in our faith and, and to press on when it's, when it's hard. And so it's structured around three main commands as we go through the text here in a second. It's structured around three main commands. And so they're talking, we have to look to ourselves and look at ourselves with God, I mean, by God's grace. But then more than that, it is commands that we are to then look at the people around us and help the people around us as a community of faith to all reach the end together, endure, and all reach the goal of growth into Christ-likeness. So let's look at that, Hebrews 12, 12 through 17. Therefore, connecting us back to uh, God's training through pain to righteousness and holiness, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray that you would rip from our hearts all the remaining selfishness that this is about us at all. All the remaining selfishness that walking to others is way too messy and hard. All the remaining selfishness that would keep us from seeing the weights that others carry and and helping them to see the spiritual carnage around us and walking into it, not shying away from it. Oh, Father, take the selfishness from our heart so that we might blaze for your glory and then live in love for others. We have been so dearly loved as children. We have been loved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Grant us to be people that walk in love. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So community is required for endurance and growth. Community is required for endurance and growth. Let's look at the first command. Straighten up and keep running so others can be strengthened by your faithfulness. Straighten up and keep running so that others may be encouraged by your faithfulness or strengthened by your faithfulness. Um, at the glorious SEB Middle School, we have two practice, field, practice fields. The upper field is actually a drain field. And so it has got soft spots where the ground will give away as you try to move on it. It's all washed out and eroded. It has this awful smell when it rains. And uh, there's potholes all in it. So this is our practice field, one of them. And almost every single year, we lose one or two ankles to the practice field up top. Right? They step in a hole that doesn't hold up, they run into a pothole, they try to plant into ground that's too soft, and there goes the ankle. So we obviously try to move our more competitive teams down to the bottom field, and the bottom field is smoother. The bottom field has something called grass on it. Uh, the bottom field has less or no potholes, and so the bottom field is smooth enough that there may still be injuries, can't control that, 
but there will not be the loss of ankles because there's a big hole in it that gives way when you step on it. And so as you think about your Christian life, one of the goals of your faithful running after Jesus is to create a field that is smooth and solid for the people around you to run that life to. And so we can live our Christian lives in such a way that the people running around us and the people coming behind us have all of these potholes to avoid and all of these soft spots that don't quite hold when they press in, or we can live our lives in such a way that the people coming behind us and the people that are around us have the most solid and level surface possible to run their race with Christ on. Can I control if my best friend makes a shipwreck of their faith? Nope. Can I control if somebody gets into a spiritual mess? No. Can I control if my kids grow up and love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? No. But can I prepare the way so that it is smooth as possible for them to go in the direction of Jesus as opposed to as bumpy and unlevel as possible so that it's harder to get to Jesus? Yes. That I can do. And that's what the first part of the text is talking about. Straighten yourself up when you want to quit. Straighten yourself up when you're tired. Straighten yourself up when you're out of gas so that the faithfulness of your run can make the people around you a little bit stronger to run. So let's look at it in the text. It says, therefore, you know, clearly that's linking us back into the arguments that have been throughout chapter 12. So run with endurance, and God is purposeful in his discipline. So when people are facing hardship under the sovereign and wise hand of God, what do we do? Straighten up, it says, or lift up drooping hands and strengthen weak knees. And so there's a, an athletic metaphor that's continuing or analogy that's continuing. Right? Run with endurance. Well, you hit a certain part of the race or a certain place in the game and you get to the place where there's nothing left inside of you. And, and you, your body is like physically spent, your mind is spent, and so your arms start to naturally droop, right? Your body starts to kind of weigh on itself. You even get to a place where your legs, their stability is a little bit gone or there's a little bit of shaking in your legs and so your, your knees have gone weak. And so when you hit that point, it becomes 100% mental. Will I look inside of myself and find something more, straighten up my shoulders and re-engage, or will I collapse in that moment? And it's 100% middle. What am I going to do? Am I going to find something and go, or am I going to give up? And so he's calling them, just like a good teammate runs and just slaps you on the back, like, you can do this, let's go. Or you hear your coach yell from the sidelines, either some encouragement or some expletive that gives you a little bit of energy to go. And keep going. And that's the physical analogy of the text. And so spiritually, he's speaking to a group of people facing opposition. They have reached the end of themselves physically. They have reached the end of themselves emotionally. They have reached the end of themselves spiritually. Everything about them is drooping. And there's nothing to keep going with. And the text, the author of the text is coming along and he's slapping them on the back. And he's saying, straighten up. Lift up those hands. Quit sagging like you're about to quit. You're not about to quit. Press on. Now, this is quoted from Isaiah 35, and I would encourage you to read all of Isaiah 35, but I'm going to just read for you a couple of verses from it. And so it says, because this is, this is the quote from the text, straighten the weak hands and make firm, feeble knees. So you recognize that from Hebrews. And then it says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come and save you. Right? And so what he does is he quotes this. So again, you straighten up. You find something inside of yourself. Now, don't get me wrong. Christianity is not a dig deep and pull yourself by the bootstraps and make sure you gut it out. It is a Holy Spirit is inside of you. Jesus has forgiven you of your sins. God is your Father. Exceedingly great and precious promises are yours. There is a word that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And all things needed for life and godliness are inside of it. You have everything you need. With that, empowered by grace, there's moments to look inside of yourself and say, straighten up and go. It's not time to quit yet. There's too much of God in your life to quit. 
But if you notice this in Isaiah 35, this passage is not about ourselves at all. It's about the people around us. Say to those with an anxious heart, fear not, your God's coming. Fear not, he's coming to save you. And so this passage is about us, yes, straighten up and run, but this passage is also about looking around yourself. Who around you is beginning to droop spiritually? Who around you is beginning to wear out emotionally? Who around you has an anxious heart that is consuming their heart in turmoil and worry? Go to people like that. Strengthen people like that. And how do you strengthen people like that? Oh, don't worry, everything's fine. How do you strengthen people like that? God is coming. God will save you. God is what we speak to give strength to people. And so strengthen or straighten up or lift up your hands and strengthen feeble knees. Keep going. And then look at the next part. Make straight paths for your feet. Now in the Old Testament, predominantly there is these two ways of life. There is the straight way of life that is the way of life God's way. It is the good way of life. It is the righteous way of life. And then there is the crooked path. Those are the wicked. Those are the evil whose path is never straight. It's always off of, the, of going after God. But in this passage, that is not the, the, the imagery being used, nor the word that's being used. It's more the idea of level versus unlevel, upper field versus lower field. It's the idea of make straight paths for your feet. Make level paths with your feet. Smooth out the ground of your feet. Why? Because there are people coming behind you that are younger in the faith, and there's people standing beside you, similar in the faith, who have gone spiritually lame. Meaning, there has been some sort of weight, some sort of opposition, some sort of trial, some sort of hardship that has hamstrung them a little bit. So they're pulling up short, and their temptation is to quit. But when you run in a way that makes the path in front of you straight, what you do is you make the path behind you straight as well. And those coming behind you or those running beside you, though they are weakened, they will not step into one of those holes and break or go out of joint and not be able to run anymore. So it's like you're coming up weak, and the choice is I can give in to that and I can, I can leave something behind me like a pothole step in that, and that weak joint breaks and goes out of joint. Or I can live in such a way that that weak joint coming behind me is actually strengthened and healed and able to go forward because my life was imparted into their life. What kind of life are you going to run? An inconsistent Christian life will make it harder for people around you and people behind you to stay faithful. An inconsistent Christian life will make it harder for the people behind you and the people around you to stay faithful to Jesus Christ. But a faithful Christian life will encourage other people to keep running. A faithful Christian life will encourage those behind you and those around you to keep running. And so make straight paths, level paths with your feet so that we don't end up having people break because of the inconsistency of our life. Instead, we have them heal and run further and faster after God so make straight paths for your feet. Live your Christian life in such a way that you encourage strength and faithfulness in others. And so are we living our Christian life in such a way that it's like, I'm gonna worry about me. I've got enough problems of my own. I don't have any free time. I'm busy. Me, 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 and God. Which, what's the dominant theme of that? Me, 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 God, right? Is that how I'm going to live my Christian life or am I going to live my Christian life continually looking around me? Because God has put me in a community of faith. He's not, he's not made me an individual. And I'm going to look around me and I'm going to invest in the people around me because the goal is that we all make it to the end, not just me. So first, straighten up and keep running so others are strengthened by your faithfulness. Second, urgently pursue peace with others and holiness that enhances your fellowship with God. Urgently pursue peace with others and holiness that enhances your fellowship with God. 
as I was thinking about like how, to, how, to, how do I see this play out, the, the thought came to my mind was this. We are way too polite to live in true and genuine peace. We're way too polite a people to live in true and genuine peace. All right, because polite is, is how do I respond in a socially acceptable way that doesn't make anyone uncomfortable? Peace is how do I get this person as healthy and, and stable and flourishing as possible, even if that means hard conversations and conflict are a part of it. Peace is a cheap, I mean, politeness is a cheap substitute for God to find peace, isn't it? But we do it, right? You've seen your friends, and they start making these really stupid choices. But I shouldn't meddle so I will be polite and say nothing and do nothing while it happens. You've watched because you've got friends around you and their marriages are like ugly. I mean, they're uncomfortable to be around because all the time and they don't even, they don't even care that you're standing in front of them. And so how do you respond to that? Well, it's uncomfortable. I'm not having them over again. It's uncomfortable. Have a nice life. I got my own stuff to deal with. I'll be polite to these people. There won't be any peace. And many of us have gotten to the place in our marriages where we have polite marriages. But we don't have God-given peace in our marriages. It's polite. We don't fight all the time. It's polite. We, ob- we, we avoid about 12 subjects, and the list is growing because conflict, conflict, conflict. It's polite. We're nice to each other. It's polite. I mean, it's polite. We get along in public. But it is not flourishing and rich and warm and whole the way it's supposed to be. We've chosen the cheap substitute of politeness over God-given peace. And the text is going to confront every single one of us to go for peace. And so look at it. Strive for peace with everyone and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And so I do want to say before we dive into the specific thing of peace, you do have balancing values here, right? And so peace is a high value to God. Unity is a high value of God. Oneness is a high value of God, right? Guard the unity given by the Holy Spirit in the bonds of peace, right? That's a high value. But there's there's one counterbalancing truth as well. Don't do so at the expense of faithfulness and purity and holiness before the Lord. Don't do so at the expense of the truth given to us by God. Right? And so, yes, peace, if it has anything to do with me, my preferences, or my rights. No, peace that requires the compromise of core things. Now look, some of us are, we don't compromise on anything. That's not it. Some of us are every single little period or, or I don't know what the symbols are called between, like, you know, you got a don't, and there's an N and a thing and a T, whatever that is. Every one of those little notches, and we're going to fight to the death and divide over anybody that does not agree with that little notch being the same as I think it should be. And that's not it. But there are some core things about God and truths he's revealed in his word that are non-negotiable. And then from there, the highest value is peace. And so peace Holiness, peace, but not peace through compromise, peace through working it out and getting through to the other side. All right, so okay, strive for peace. The word for strive is the word for urgently or eagerly seeking after something. And so it is to run as fast as you can to get to a goal. Christians, run as fast as you can to be comfortable with each other and make sure that you're polite with each other. And Christians, run as fast as you can to make sure that there is nothing messy about your relationships with other Christians. Or Christians, with urgency, strive and strain and exert yourself to go past politeness to peace. Now, he is writing this to Hebrews. It's in the name. That's not a great theological insight. He's writing this to Hebrews, which means the Hebrew concept of peace is what he's pointing at. Shalom is the word that we use. And so what does that mean? It means that everything is the way it's supposed to be. 
It has the idea of wholeness, health, fullness, richness, abundance. Everything's the way it's supposed to be. And so when he says, Christian, strive for peace with everyone, he's saying, Christian, strive for everything being the way it's supposed to be in every relationship that your life is a part of. Now, Romans balances it's like as much as it depends on you. Like, I can walk as far up to the line of peace with another person as possible and say, peace, please, come. I can't make them come, but I can go as far as possible, as much as it depends on me. But strive for peace. So there should be a wholeness and a, a fullness and a everything's being the way it's supposed to be, well-being that categorizes all of our relationships. Strive for that. And God is so much more eager for our peace than he is for our comfort if only we would be about that if only we would yearn to live in the richness and fullness of relationships that are right and the way they're supposed to be not separate where I kind of feel a little weird every time I'm around this person and I'm a little uncomfortable and I act differently around this person strive for for peace strive for peace with all people And so I want you to think about this. Walk through the different circles of your life with this prism. Is this relationship marked by peace? Is it as healthy and full as it's supposed to be? Now, not every relationship is the same, right? The the relationship I have with my neighbor is, is different than the relationship I have with you, which is different than the relationship I have with my Sunday school class or guys that I meet with on a regular basis, which is different than my wife and my family. But as is appropriate to the relationship, I ask myself the question, is this relationship marked by peace? Is it the way it's supposed to be? Is it as healthy and flourishing as it's supposed to be? And if you were to take that and say, okay, when it comes to my marriage, is there a polite distance or is there a warmth? Is there a healthy, it's the way it's supposed to be as God defines it, not me? Or are there areas that need to be addressed? Strive for peace. As you think about the people that are in your campus ministry or the people that are on your team or the people that are in your classes or the people that you work with or the people in your Sunday school class or the person that's sitting over there and you sit over here because they're over there or you sit over here because they're over there. Is is peace the category, how you would describe that relationship? Strive, urgently, pursue, fight for, do what it takes to get to peace. And then holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So holiness is something God has given you because Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus rose again and he has declared you righteous and he has declared you holy. And so throughout the Bible, saints at Corinth, saints at Fletcher, holy ones, made holy by the work of Jesus Christ. So that's true. And since we are holy ones, we're called to strive to be holy from that. I am holy, and so I strive for holiness in my practice. And so strive for holiness It says, strive for a set-apartness to God where that you experience more of God in your life. Strive to live in such a way that you look like Jesus and you come closer and closer to Jesus so that you experience more of Jesus in your life. It's part of God's work in the last, uh, last section, isn't it? He's working in you to share in his holiness. And so holiness to mark your life. And so... Peace is a primary value for God. Unity and oneness is a primary value for God. But at multiple places in the scripture, this one caveat comes in. Holiness and purity. James says the same thing. The wisdom from above, the way of viewing life and the way of viewing the world that is from above versus demonic is first pure, then peaceable and gentle and open to reason and these other qualities. And so we don't have peace at the expense of holiness, peace at the expense of truth. We have peace by walking through things. Because it's easy to use, like you've seen it. We're going to just, we're just going to stay united. So I'll give up this part. 
We're just going to be united, so I won't say anything. We're just going to have unity, so that can be an excuse for me to live how I want or believe what I want. Or holiness is the uncompromisable part for peace to flourish. See, I would say the holy man is most notably a peaceful man. The holy woman is most notably a peaceful woman. Think about it this way. If the whole entire earth was described as holy, how much conflict would there be in the world? Zero. Holy people are peaceful people. But there are things with clear eyes we know that we have to go to war for. And you know what the primary war of my life is? Hopefully. It's not you. It's not the liberals out there or the conservatives. It's not Joe Biden or Donald Trump. It's not the latest thing I'm supposed to be upset with in the news. You know what the war of my life is? Me. I have lusts and temptations and desires and selfishness and pride and idols that must topple and must die. And I'm so busy fighting me, I I can't get too worked up about the stuff that doesn't matter. I'm so busy fighting me, I can't hate you. I'm too busy hating the stuff in me that is not honoring and pleasing to the Lord to hate people that, that think differently about the world than me. Holy people are at war, but we start with a war with ourselves, and then holy people are at war for the things that matter to God. Now, the things that really matter to God, not the things that I like that I can put on God, but that really matter to God. Holy people are peaceful people, and they know where to fight. They know where to fight. And so if you wanted some guiding values for our life, peace and holiness would be really good places to start. Starting with your marriage, your kids, the relationships closest to you, church, and out from there. Do I value peace? Do I value relationships being all that God intended them to be? Is there any relationship in my life right now that is not marked by peace? Is there any relationship right now that's not what it's supposed to be? What a great value to live out and holiness. God says in, in 1 John 3, 3, when, we see, when Jesus Christ appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And what do we do with a truth like that? Therefore, everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. And so, am I marked by a holiness that is becoming more and more like Jesus and experiences more and more fellowship with Jesus and more and more of richness in Jesus Am I marked by peace with others? Last step. Watch over others so that they live in grace, not bitterness or worldly desires. Watch over others so that they live in grace, not bitterness and worldly desires. I want to give you three things that I see about bitterness in people's lives that maybe you'll see them as well and hopefully you'll realize or avoid some of these things. And so the first thing uh, I would say about bitterness is it takes a temporary problem and makes it a permanent disposition. It takes a temporary problem and makes it a permanent disposition of their life. The second thing I would say about it is it takes a hard portion of our lives and colors all of our lives that color. It takes a small portion of our life and colors all of our life that color. So it takes temporary and makes it permanent. It takes a piece and makes it the whole. And then the last thing I would say is that it takes something that affects us and poisons everyone around us. It takes something that affects us and poisons everyone around us. Bitterness never stays alone. Bitterness never lives by itself. It always has company. It always spews and falls on top of other people. And so let's look at it. See to it. Now the word see is the same root word that we get elder from, overseer. So oversee the people around you. Watch over the people around you. And he's going to give three key areas to watch over the people around you with. Meaning you have a direct command from God to look around you with an eye to help and investment. Which means we are in sin when we look at us and only us and only about us. 
Now, I'm not looking around to judge the people around me who are not doing as good as me. I'm looking around at people that need help and investment and, and, and growth and maturity, and I'm looking around to see who can I help come along. But it is sin when we say it is about me. Christianity is about me. Church is about me. If I get something out of it, it's about me. If I don't get something out of it, I should go somewhere else because it's about me. And it says, no. It is about the glory of God, and it is about the people around you. Then you come into the picture. And we hate living that way. But we're made to live that way. And so let's look at it. See to it, these three areas. First, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now, to simplify this, because this is one of those like four or five statements in Hebrews that almost sounds like you could lose your salvation. See that nobody fails to get saving grace. But in each of those cases, we've been interpreting, right? We've been interpreting that this is most likely dealing with a loss of rewards and I would say a loss of impact. And so when it says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, what it's saying is, uh, the word is saying is, see that nobody falls behind the pace and then drops out. So what does that mean? Make sure you're looking around at the people around you and making sure they're not starting to fall off the pace of using their gifts and living in the rich grace of God and, and bearing fruit in the name of Jesus and the rewards that will come with that. See to it that nobody is falling off the pace of investing in the lives of the people around them. See to it that no one falls short, lags behind in the grace of God. In some relationships of your life and at some points in your life, you will be the front runner. You will be the pace setter. So will the pace you set lead people to more and more of the grace of God and more and more of the impact in the lives of others, or will the pace you set fall behind what grace is meant to produce in your life and through your life? See to it that doesn't happen in the people around you. Second, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up. Now, you've, here's how bitterness works, is you have a circumstance that is disappointing, a circumstance that is sad, a circumstance that is frustrating and ang makes you angry, you have some kind of hard circumstance. And normally how we do that is we have this painful or hard circumstance and we walk through the emotions of it, we, we find stability in God and we come through it. But the bitter person has this hard circumstance and then they freeze at the place of their emotions. They freeze within their anger and they freeze in their disappointment and they freeze within their, uh, their frustration over it. They freeze within how bad it is and they sit down and they begin to marinate in the herbs of negativity, herbs of, of anger, herbs of criticism, herbs of disappointment until they are completely flavored with anger, despair, and disappointment and despondency and that is the flavor of their life now. And you've got to be so careful that when somebody faces hardship, bitter, they don't freeze and become bitter. It is so easy, it is so natural, and it is so destructive for us to stop the process at the place of anger and disappointment. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up because roots of bitterness are gonna destroy you, right? Causes problems. And roots of bitterness are going to destroy the people around you. Bitterness never lives alone. Through it, many may be defiled. Through it, many may be defiled. So if I am completely flavored in anger and disappointment called bitterness, then I am spewing out the toxic aroma of criticism and negativity and frustration and bitterness. And you know what? Other people latch onto that too. And now we have a group of complaining, group of bitter, a group of angry, and we find each other. And we poison more and more and more of the air around us when we do. How is somebody in this room gonna get out of the place of stewing in bitterness? Somebody else in this room is near them enough to see it and loves them enough not to be polite, but to walk in and help them out. God commands you and he commands me to watch over people, to watch over ourselves so that bitterness doesn't 
own a person's heart without us fighting for a person's heart. And then the last step, it's a moral one. We watch over each other so that no one is sexually immoral or worldly. So we watch over the grace of God growing in people's lives. We're watching over that we don't freeze in a place of bitterness. Now we're watching over that the physical appetites of a person don't choke out the spiritual appetites of a person. And sex is the main one that he points out. And you think about it, as our, as our world becomes more and more autonomous and I get to define myself in ways that nobody has ever been able to be defined before, and since nobody's been able to define people this way before, I've got to think of a new and unique way to define myself that's different than the way all these other people redefining themselves define themselves. So I've got this whole new splintering, and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of ways for sexual lust to express itself in us and express itself in our minds and emotions and express itself physically. There's no shortage And that is a physical appetite of your life that will choke out every vestige of spiritual work that God's doing in your life. But it's not just that one, is it? He says unholy. The word for unholy is not like God, uh, it's not like sinful. It is sinful. The word for unholy simply means secular. God's not part of the equation. Now, if you are sitting here in sexual immorality of some sort, And I want to plead with you by the grace of God to move towards Christ again and to move towards a life that actually makes a difference in people's lives versus takes to fulfill your own desires from them, yes. But I imagine most people sitting in this room, we just love a bunch of stuff that's good, a bunch of stuff that's neutral, so much that there's no room to love anything spiritual. And we have had our spiritual appetite completely choked out by good jobs. Completely choked out by getting more stuff. Completely choked out because of a relationship we're pursuing. Completely choked out because we just like hobbies and they're fun. And so we filled our lives with so many good things that are world things that there's no appetite or desire or love for spirit things. And that's why he uses Esau as an example. Esau, for a bowl of soup that I wouldn't eat, and I probably would if I was starving, but I've had to have these lentil things when we took a mission trip, and you know, I'm not giving a birthright up for it. Maybe steak. We'll see. But that's the point he's making, is for a little meal, a physical appetite being satisfied for a couple of hours and soup that will leave the body in a couple of hours, he sells his spiritual role within his family, his birthright. Now, yes, it has material things too, but it's spiritual. And so for a bowl of soup, he sells his spiritual place in his family. And then later, it's like, but I want the blessing, meaning I want the inheritance of the promises God has made to my family to come to me. And when he wanted that, God's like, no, you've been rejected. Because he was a man who lived dominated by his physical appetites with no concern whatsoever for his spiritual appetite. Are you watching over the people around you to see if there's any spiritual appetite in them at all? Are you watching the people around you to say, you keep adding one more thing and one more thing and one more thing, and it's choking out any pursuit of God in your life, any time for God in your life, any pursuit of the spiritual world in your life. And I, I see that creeping in. Are we going to be people that watch over each other to ensure that our physical appetites don't choke out our spiritual ones? That don't choke out our spiritual ones. And so life isn't just about you. You are saved and you are sent to a people around you. Last week you were saved and sent to the lost. We have a mission trip coming up. It's a weekend mission trip. There's 350 people in this room. And I'm not trying to guilt you into going on this trip. If I have to, I don't want you to go. Like If you're going because you feel guilty, don't go. But 350 people and God's spirit hadn't burdened one of us to take a weekend to share the gospel where the nations are three hours away. Really? That would be surprising. That would be surprising. So what's blocked our ears off from an appetite to see people reached at the lowest possible sacrifice that we can make? What's deafened our ears? Sorry, that was free. Life isn't just about us. We are saved 
and we're set into community. And that community is not simply a group of polite people that dress well and sing good songs together on Sunday. That group of people is a group of people committed to the good and the well-being and the flourishing of everybody within that family. Can you imagine sitting in your home and one of the people in your home is absolutely falling apart and we just don't give a rip? It would be very impolite of me to say, you look like you're falling apart. So I won't say anything. But that's what this is. It's a family. A few practical things as we close out. First, what, what in your life is wearing you down? What in your life is wearing you down? Now, it may be that there is sin that has entangled your heart and is keeping you from God, and it's become this suctioning weight on you that is keeping you from running with endurance, right? Here's the really good news. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to wash us clean from our sin and forgive us. But maybe it's the circumstances of life accumulating little frustration after little frustration after little frustration after little frustration until it is consuming, or maybe it is a massive event of pain in your life. Let me give you something that the Bible uses because it's not silent on how you walk through the stuff of life. God has given us this thing called lament. One-third of the 150 psalms are psalms of lament. They are humans expressing raw and real, at times ugly emotions to God with confidence in God. And so here's how I would encourage you to write your lament. One, write it towards God. Meaning God is in the equation, you are focused on God, you are going towards God with your complaint. Number two, write it in real, honest, raw emotions. God, why have you abandoned me, is what a psalmist says. God says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, and yet the psalmist is like, why'd you give up on me? Why'd you leave? Honest, real, raw emotions expressed towards God. And then lastly, confidence in who God is and the promises he's made. Walk through your pain and your hurt and the things you have experienced towards God with confidence in God and real emotions, not this fake church plastic emotion. What's wearing you down? Second, where do you see something short of peace in your relationships? Where do you see something short of peace in your relationships? Have you settled for a roommate instead of a spouse? Meaning you let coldness and distance drift in, but y'all are nice and polite to each other. And you can talk about the kids' schedules. Is it somebody in, in your church circles that you've chosen that I just, you know, I'm going to let the distance drift and, it, you know, I'll just let it go. And if I let it go, it will go away. What relationship isn't as full and whole and healthy as God wants it to be? Third, what signs do you see that worldly appetites are crowding out spiritual ones? What signs do you see that worldly appetites are crowding out spiritual ones? You could probably start really easily. How consistently is the word part of your life? Should be most days of most weeks. There. Some time in prayer attached to it. What about church? Did that become really optional if there's nothing else better going on that day? What is it that you see where worldly appetites are latching onto you and spiritual ones are drifting. Maybe it's community because that takes more than an hour on Sunday. And yes, I know it's an hour and 15, 20. <laughs> but do you find yourself like distancing from community that's beyond that time? What are some signs that the physical world is choking out the spiritual one in your life? Look, we're not meant to, made to do, we are not meant to do this life on our own. I hope you've realized by experience, I can't do this life on my own. And God gives us the church because it's as the church, as a people of God in community, we can run the race with endurance and growth together. Let's pray. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we bow. In the name of Jesus, we confess we're way too much about us and our likes and our wants and our desires and our time and our ways. And we're way too little about others. Would you rescue us from us, we pray. Would you rescue us from us 
And Lord, if there's someone sitting in here, sitting within the sound of my voice, and they're striving, but they're striving without the salvation and the grace that is given by Christ. They're working so hard, but it's not going anywhere because they don't have Christ. Would you wake them up? Would you unveil their eyes? Would you grant them to see Jesus and believe? We pray for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to our time of invitation, striving for holiness is only possible because the Holy One died on your behalf. The Holy One died on the cross for your sins. The Holy One raised again from the dead. The Holy One is sitting at the right hand of the Father. The Holy One is inviting you to turn to Him, Jesus, away from your sin and towards Him, and to put your faith in Jesus alone, and He'll make you holy too. He will declare you righteous, but you cannot get it any other way. Have you ever turned from your sin and put your faith in Jesus alone to save you? Come, let's pray about it together. Come, let's talk. Fill out the white sheet in your bulletin and say, you need to talk this through with somebody. We'd love to talk it through. But maybe for you, what you see is there's just been this slacking and and reducing of any spiritual appetite in your life. You're running as fast as you can run and doing as much as you can do. And God is the one that's been left beside. And you just want to confess that. You just want to return to the Lord in these moments. And he certainly will return to you. Or maybe a fresh commitment to say, I'm going to be about other people. God, you've invested too much in me. I've grown too much, not pridefully. You've done too much in my life for me to keep revolving my life around me. And there's a fresh commitment in my life today that I'm going to go to others. How do you need to respond? Let's stand together as we sing, and you respond to the Lord. Um, just have the privilege of uh, introducing officially Lauren to the church. She's been with us for many years and is now just sense that she wants to place her life in covenant membership here. And so uh, would you celebrate that with us today? Got your name right and everything. Uh, make sure on our way out to welcome her officially um, as we depart. And let's pray. So Father, thank you that you are adding to your body. Thank you that you have gifted your church with Lauren and with others that have joined into this family. Thank you, Father, that you're also using your church for your name and for others. We pray that in Jesus' name.